Are you currently farming or dreaming about taking your homestead to the next level? Do you want all the latest information about growing and marketing vegetables, meat, grains, flowers, dairy, and more? Then register for the Future Harvest Conference, which will take place online on January 13th and 14th, 2022. As a virtual conference, you can join from anywhere in the world using your computer or smartphone and partake in this year's theme, Together We Can. Register at futureharvest.org. Future Harvest is my local sustainable agriculture organization, which covers the Chesapeake region in the Mid-Atlantic here in the United States. In addition to sharing this information with you, I'll also be attending the conference and hope to see you there. As a listener to the show, if you send me a copy of your conference registration confirmation, I'll enter you into a giveaway for a free meandering session. Again, you can find more about the conference and register today at futureharvest.org. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this interview, I'm joined by the author of Farm and Other F-Words, rural and agriculture writer and researcher Sarah Mock. Sarah shares her discoveries about the sustaining myths versus the realities of farms, farmers, farming, and agriculture profitability in the United States. She also takes us deep into systemic incentives for holding agriculture land as an investment, and how this and other laws and tax policies limit first-generation farmers from accessing or retaining land in order to grow food. Enjoy this conversation with Sarah, and I'll join you again after. How do we marry these priorities around nutrition and environmental sustainability to financial sustainability and actually building businesses that aren't exploiting farmers, farm workers, landscapes, basically everyone and everything involved in agriculture. And I think maybe I came to some unexpected conclusions, but that is all in the book. And I became aware of you. I don't remember who it was exactly, but someone Someone retweeted you, and it was in regards to some things that were going with, on with Sylvan Aqua Farm and Chris Newman and conversations about land access. And then from there, I dug further into what you were talking about, and it really resonated with me because it was several years ago, I interviewed Seth Wilner, who's an extension agent. And in that conversation, he was talking about how much skilled labor actually goes into farming, but how little control in many regards farmers have when it comes to selling their product at market. And we were using corn as an example. And he said, you know, if you're having a rough time on your farm and your production cost per bushel is, you know, seven or $8 higher than your neighbors for some reason, then you take it to market and you try to sell it. You have to sell it at what the market has available to you. And the way that that reflects on whole farm planning and income for farmers. And then as I started talking to permaculture practitioners who were farming on small acreage, how many of them were given land to work from? How many of them had partners who were able to support their farming efforts? And then when working in some regenerative circles, uh, meeting some farmers who were talking about what their actual cash flow from their farm was, even though they owned hundreds of acres of land, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and none of it really made sense to me. And then following your work, it started to kind of break down how all of these different resources are available from centralized government, the amount of value that you have in your land that allows you to leverage that. If you have generational wealth through farming and access to land, 
that you can lease that land out for a cash income without actually having to farm. And the way all of these systemic forces kind of tie together, and it also kind of showed how that locks a lot of people who are interested in agriculture out of doing the work that they care about. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many different ways that that system, yeah, basically creates this really high barrier to entry and holds the people who are already in agriculture. Basically, it's almost impossible unless you really want to leave. Like there's, it's very hard to get forced out of farming if you already own farmland, if you're already kind of in the space and have, basically, if you're rich enough to farm, if you have the wealth to own farmland and, and kind of be in that world, then it's harder to make mistakes that are big enough to actually destabilize the wealth that like gets you there. If you do not have that wealth, if you don't either have kind of the inherited land wealth, if you don't have first career wealth, second career farming is a big way that people get into agriculture. So if you didn't have a first career that netted you a lot of money that you are now taking into, you know, your dream of farming, that can be a big challenge, a big hurdle to overcome. So yeah, basically if you're not rich in either assets or income, it's really hard to farm. There's always exceptions that prove the rules. There's always people who are actively losing money and exit farming. I talked to more than one of those farmers for my book, but I kind of think of them as like, there's two groups of farmers. There's the people who are rich enough to farm and they're the people who started rich enough to farm and are losing money. And eventually they're going to be too poor to farm. And then you have to leave, you have to get out. And, you know, one of the big ways that, especially for young folks, especially people in permaculture and regenerative circles, first generation farmers, a big way that they get pushed out of agriculture is through rent. Not owning farmland is one of the biggest disadvantages you can have in the system. And we know that that's true, right? A lot of organizations, including the National Young Farmers Coalition, has focused on access to farmland as a key issue for young farmers. But by either making grants available for young farmers to get on farmland or trying to find farmers who are willing to transfer land for like slightly less than market. The challenge there is that we can only do that kind of marginally around the edge. At the end of the day, like land is really valuable in America and especially farmland because of the agricultural land taxes are the least expensive land taxes in the United States in general and capital gains tax. Between those two, land is such a desirable place for high net worth individuals to park money. Case in point, Bill Gates is the largest farmland owner in the United States that whenever we talk about the fact that young farmers can't get access to land, we never talk about the fact that we've turned land into an asset class, into basically a type of trust fund. When you think of it that way, when you think of the the idea that 30-year-olds don't have land trust funds, of course they don't. Not a lot of 30-year-olds who want to go into farming are super rich, but that is kind of at the core of a lot of agricultural economic issues is just that farmland is such a valuable asset and is treated as an asset class by America's wealthiest individuals. And that is creating a serious barrier to getting started in farming, continuing in farming if you've started already and making any kind of transition towards a different kind of agricultural system than the one we have. There's a story that a listener contacted me years ago to talk about wanting to take 10 acres of their family farm out of production in order to turn it into a permaculture style food forest in the Midwest and to try these ideas and experiment with them. And their parents said no, because it would cost too much to take even those 10 acres out of production. And when people are talking about farming hundreds of acres or thousands of acres, 
I can't understand how what seems like such a small amount of land could have such a huge impact on the farm and the perceived bottom line and how that even locks people who are involved in farm families out of trying some of these other ideas. Yeah, so there's a couple things going on there, and that is actually a much more common case than you would think. For the book, I talked to a farmer in Nebraska who is young and progressive, super interested in kind of organic, regenerative permaculture type practices, but he owns 3,500 acres of basically what is now corn, soybeans. He does a bit of some field peas. And I use his story as a way to talk about basically this phenomenon, which is farms that are too big to grow food. So one of the big things that's happening there is that when we talk about the tax benefits of owning and the kind of getting away from paying property taxes of owning farmland, farmland usually needs to be in production to be taxed as agricultural land at a lower rate. So as soon as we start taking land out of agricultural production, which in different states means different things. And in a lot of states, you don't actively have to farm. Like you do not have to have corn and soybeans on corn and soybean acres for it to be in agricultural production and qualify for those tax breaks. But in some places you do, or you have to have them in a certain kind of agriculture. They have to have a certain measure of productivity. So if you're taking conventionally farmed acres completely out and putting it into native prairie or forest that might not qualify as agricultural land anymore. And you, you could be left paying a significantly higher rate of tax on that land. And a lot of farmers don't feel like they can afford to do that. The other thing that's happening there is qualifying for USDA commodity programs. So in the Farm Bill, there's a couple of different ways to get direct payments from the USDA, right? There's conservation programs, which is basically being paid either as part of an easement program or a conservation reserve program to idle land or to put it in native species, but there's requirements of what that looks like. And you have to do it the way that USDA says to be able to qualify to get the money. Then there is the crop insurance program, which is not super relevant to this part of the conversation, but then there's the commodity titles, which is basically, you know, you sign up for them as a commodity farmer you register the number of acres you have, and you get paid the difference between the market price and a benchmark price every year for the set number of acres. If you reduce your acres by taking them out of conventional production or corn and soybean production or whatever kind of grain production or commodity production you're doing, you are removing your ability to collect on those base acres. So you might be denying yourself several dozen dollars an acre or so in commodity payments and that can look a lot of different ways, but basically there's a lot of monetary incentives if you say are a farmer in the Midwest to continue farming in corn and soybeans. And then, you know, if we want to talk about the bigger picture, not so much to, you know, I want to put 10 acres into a food forest, but I think we think a lot about someone who has 2000 acres of corn and soybeans in Iowa. Why aren't they growing food? Why don't they plant apple trees? Why don't they, you know, plant tomatoes or salad greens? You can grow almost any kind of food in Iowa. The, the soil's great, the climate's pretty ideal. But one of the biggest reasons why farms can't do that is because one, different farms operate in fundamentally different ways. The 3,500 acre corn and soybean farmer I talked with in Nebraska, that whole operation is operated by like three and a half people. 50 to 100 acres of, say, a tomato farm is an incredibly large tomato farm. And so if they had 3,500 acres, they wanted to transition from growing corn and soybeans to growing tomatoes or some other kind of high value specialty crop. 
they would first of all have to deal with 3,400 acres of what are we going to do with that? Are we going to keep it in corn and soybeans? Are we going to convert it to some other kind of land use? And then what is our tax burden of doing that? What does it cost us in terms of USDA payments to do that? And then for your 100 acres of tomatoes, you suddenly have a giant labor demand, which the thought being in Iowa is it how easy is it to get 100 seasonal laborers to house them to participate in the H-2A program or to do what a lot of other states do, which is use undocumented people. What will it look like to have to build a packing house, to have infrastructure, to grow a fundamentally different kind of crop, to find markets, to deliver millions of pounds of tomatoes or strawberries or lettuce or whatever it is to. It gets to the point where if you're a 3,500 acre corn and soybean farmer in Iowa and you want to your heart's dead set on being a specialty crop producer, you basically need to sell your whole business and just start from scratch and develop like a completely different kind of expertise and knowledge, build a whole market, build all this infrastructure from the ground up. And so people don't do it. There's enough incentives and security in place to lock you into the commodity grain system that we have. It's hard to even argue that any amount of incentivizing another kind of crop would cause a significant transition because at the end of the day, holding that 3,500 acres of agricultural land is tens of millions of dollars of assets that you don't want to part with. Part of holding that is making sure that the tax burden is low. So making sure it stays in agricultural production. Maybe if corn and soybean production became really unpalatable, it would go to grazing land. But the idea that we could get a 3,000 acre corn and soybean farmer in Iowa to transition to producing fresh fruits and vegetables or some other kind of more human edible food is just really, really hard to imagine without some deeper, more fundamental transformation of the system. The systemic forces that are in place that allow them to continue farming at a given lifestyle, knowing what their tax burdens are going to be, knowing what their income is going to be, where trying to make that transition, as you say, would lead them to a place where they more or less have to start over. Yeah, totally. There is not an appreciation for how much of what is happening in agriculture and the bigger agricultural system that is problematic has very little to do with practices. It has nothing to do with like GMOs or heavy machinery or any of that stuff. And it has everything to do with the financial instruments and what the economic incentives, USDA subsidies kind of get the biggest chunk of attention in terms of creating false incentives or bad incentives for farmers, but truly like the tax code is right there. The IRS knows that people use farms as tax shelters and has, you know, in their 250 page, how to filing taxes as a farmer, there's dozens and dozens of pages about farms as tax shelters. And so, you know, we know that this is happening. It is a very obvious way that people use agriculture. And it means that actually trying to grow food on farmland is one of the least lucrative ways to use farmland. It's more lucrative to use it as a tax shelter. It's more lucrative to use it as an investment vehicle. Farmland has outperformed the S&P 500 40 out of the last 50 years. So just to hold it as it gains value over time, and it's more lucrative to use it basically like a pleasure good. I'm independently wealthy and I want the rural lifestyle. I want property. I want to spend time in nature. So I'm going to own farmland just because I think it's worth the money. The fourth And lowest value way to use farmland, arguably, is to actually grow food and sell it in the market. Having like had that feeling that that was the case for a long time, but to have the veil ripped off 
it's kind of heartbreaking that there's all these people who want to grow food, but their desire to grow food isn't valuable enough. Yes. I think about the small scale holders that I've interviewed over the years who are earning a comfortable middle-class living off of just a couple of acres actually growing food for the marketplace. How do we provide access to land for people who are interested in growing food when all these other systems are in place that kind of lock people out of it? And the conversations that we've been having in like the regenerative space and the permaculture space is like, what do some of these things look like at scale? But so far from our conversation, I'm seeing why scale in permaculture is usually maybe tens of acres compared to what we see with like commodity crops. Yeah, totally. It's a testament to people's commitment to the passion of people who want to grow food and feed communities that so much of this work of the kind of local food movement of the last several years has happened in these peri-urban spaces, right? Like right on the edge of cities on relatively, truly very small acreage. And there's a lot to celebrate there because it takes a lot of kind of courage and effort and even, you know, acquiring four or five acres anywhere near the DC metro area, for example, is still a very expensive endeavor. It's still very hard to do, but it's hard to think of how much effort and fight it has taken to just establish, you know, a few dozen of these very small acre permaculture farms when there is millions and tens of millions of acres of farmland out there being used to grow a third of the U.S.'s corn crop every year goes into ethanol. In the D.C. area, you can pay 30 cents extra per gallon of gasoline to buy fuel without ethanol. So taxpayers pay to make sure that ethanol gets made. And then we pay to get it out of our gasoline, which is just like the true insanity of we are here battling along the edges of cities to scrape together enough land to supply produce for farmers markets and maybe a little bit to grocery stores, but it's not very common to see a lot of that in grocery stores. Well, at the same time, you know, again, I'll take the Mid-Atlantic, for example, between Maryland and Virginia, they're some of the richest, most valuable farmland in the United States where you could truly grow any kind of crop you wanted, but it's being outcompeted by legacy farmers who have been in the area for hundreds of years. One of the farmers in the book is a 16th generation farmer in Virginia. Their land was deeded to his ancestors in the 1600s. They bought 400 acres of land in Virginia for 20 shillings, which according to the UK currency converter I used is 22 days wages. That original 400 acres, which they still own, is worth almost $10 million today. So it's really hard to compete against that kind of entrenchment, but that's the kind of entrenchment that exists here. And that's just in the agriculture space, right? Now around DC, all the way through Virginia and Maryland, you're also competing against people who just like DC's wealthy, who want acreage and who want kind of a country lifestyle you're competing against all the like kind of state and national institutions that are looking for property to do you know everything from like military bases to office space and big things like that so the competition for land especially in the areas where farmland is at a peak is really really challenging and the number one way we protect farmland in the United States is by making sure it's taxed less than other land uses but what that really does is just entrench people who already owned farmland and made it so, especially people who already own farmland, have the capital to leverage to buy more farmland. It's not very many first-generation farmers who are able to tackle 
buying farmland for the first time, which is why, you know, we talk about consolidation a lot in agriculture. We talk about the big getting bigger. That's why our system is set up for that to happen. And yeah, we are not always having various, very serious conversations about how to do that. And I think part of what I talk about in the book, why that is, is because we're really bad at parsing out the difference between different kinds of farmers and talking about the reality of the fact that most farmers are very wealthy. We have an idea in our minds and kind of the American zeitgeist that all farmers are poor. And that idea alone creates a huge opportunity for very wealthy farmers to continue to get advantages and privileges because we just believe that they're poor and we don't check. And every time we do that, we further entrench the way that things are right now. And there's something that came up just before we recorded this, that even though farmers may be cash poor in some years, that that doesn't mean that they're in a place of poverty. And I think about a conversation I had with a farmer in the regenerative space who talked about all the work that they were doing and that in a year they only earned like $8,000. But then in that conversation was also about all of the equipment that their farm was able to purchase that year, replacing their farm truck with a newer truck. And the way that creates a narrative that reinforces that idea that you just shared about farmers in a place of poverty when we're not addressing the value of the land or all the different ways in which they are earning an income from that space or the value of all the equipment that they own. Part of the problem here is that farming is a unique space in terms of small businesses and entrepreneurship where we really, really blur the line between what is private individual kind of like family personal assets and what is a business asset. And we don't make a distinction between those really at all in a way that we would for other small businesses, right? Any kind of small business you could start, you know that there's a significant upfront costs, you know that you lose money a lot of the time. Many small businesses really never get to a place where they're making a significant profit all the time. But for some reason in agriculture, we just think that we should. There's a weird stance of like what success in agriculture means. And I think part of that is tied to this idea of of farm as kind of an investment more than anything. You know, there's a great conversation to be had about the fact that we always think that any time a farm exits anytime a farm either like goes out of business or gets sold or whatever that looks like it has failed when you're an entrepreneur and you build a business you probably want to exit at some point right as a business owner you put in a lot of effort and work and expertise and it accrues not as like cash wages but as equity in the business you gain customers over time you gain a reputation you build a brand you collect physical assets And eventually there's going to probably come a time in your life when you are interested in selling all of that, selling your business so that you can cash out and have the money that you earned with all of your building and expertise and then like retire and maybe not have to work forever. But when that happens to a farm, we think that it's failed. We think that that's like heartbreaking and sad and that basically if if anything happens other than it being passed directly onto a blood relative of the original person who started it or the original person who was operating it, that that farm has failed. We like have to stop thinking about farms that way because it creates a lot of like terrible mental and emotional burdens for people in agriculture. Farmers deserve to be able to retire just like anyone else. 
we all want to age gracefully. We all want to age with dignity and working till you're 85. That might be someone's cup of tea, but it's not going to be everyone's. And we can't say like, well, you're not allowed to sell your farm because you're a farmer and you have to die working the land. To the idea of being land rich and cash poor, you know, I think that ties in with the idea that land wealth, because it's not cash, it's not real, right? That if it's not money in my bank account, then I don't have to count it as part of my wealth. But like I often use the example, would we call Larry Page, the founder and major shareholder of Google, cash poor, Google stock rich? No, he's just rich. His money is not in cash, but it is in an asset that he can use and it was in desperate need of money, he would be able to sell something to be able to access cash to pay for cancer treatments or pay to fix something that was broken. Like he has money. He's not poor. Being land rich and cash poor is very similar. You do have something that you can sell. You do have something you could turn into cash if you needed to. And I know this because I know the agricultural community pretty well. And I hear a lot of conversations about, you know, I don't make very much money as a farmer and therefore I'm poor. One that fits really nicely into a historical narrative that we have about farmers being poor, which is really not about farmers being poor. It's about tenant farmers being poor, which tenant farmers are really just farm laborers, right? Farm workers are almost universally throughout all of history in every country, always poor. Farmers, people who own farmland, much less likely to be poor. But making sure that you kind of maintain that identity of poverty allows us to want to help them, give them money, give them resources, give them exemptions and privileges. But it also creates a sense that they are the working people more than they are owners of capital. But that is what they are. I don't know. It's a bit of sleight of hand. It's a bit of no matter how much you have, it will never be enough. I saw a funny tweet yesterday, actually, on Twitter about 27-year-old in Silicon Valley says, you know, I have $80,000 in my Bitcoin account. Maybe I'll retire soon. Versus a 67-year-old farmer in the Midwest who owns $30 million in farmland and says, you know, it's meager and I'll probably never be able to retire, but it's mine. That's real. That's like a real perspective of just like, if it's not cash, if it's not wages, it's not mine and it's not real. But that's just not true because it is. And, you know, we know that 98% of farms in the United States are either high wealth or high income. And 55% of them are both. So yeah, farms just, they aren't poor. They might have bad cash flow or low cash flow, but lots of businesses, lots of industries have relatively low cash flow. Agriculture is actually not unique in that way. Just like lots of other industries also are weather dependent or have long production times. Agriculture loves to believe itself to be fundamentally different from all other industries that we're familiar with. The reality is, It's just a business. Every industry, every job that you can have will have practitioners and participants who believe it is a calling, a practice, a glorious purpose in the world. And like all work can be that maybe for some people and just like farming can be, but I don't know. We give a special pass to farming and to agriculture. And I actually think that moving past that special exception will actually be really helpful for the industry and help us get to a place where we are are less forgiving of exploitation and agriculture, where we treat farmers better, where we treat farm workers better, where we treat the land better, plants and animals better. The exception that we give for the emotionality and the idealism and the small family farm ideal 
is actually hurting us, not helping us. And that was Sarah Mock. You can find more about her, her writing, and broadcast coverage at sarahkmock.com. She is also on Twitter at Sarah underscore K underscore Mock. And her book, Farm and Other F-Words, is available from bookshop.org. Links to all of those are in the show notes. Next in the series is farmer Amy Rose Fole of Virginia Free Farm, offering more insights into the life of a farmer working with the land and growing food for the people who live there. Until then, spend each day considering the impact of story and perception on our knowledge and understanding while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.